Welcome to the TAC show. Today we have our special guest, Katrina Binkowitz. Now, Katrina, what exactly is your job? Uh, my current job is I am a teacher at Exceptional Education at Tompkins County, Seneca Tioga Boses up on Warren Road. And I have certification in sci high school science, New York State science, and special education and art. And my current job is as teacher in Lighthouse. It's a short-term program six weeks kids come in for six weeks and they can come in at any time for admission and they stay for six weeks and then they go back to their homeschool um, they come there for extra support with academics they might have you know had they might be not attending school for a variety of reasons there are lots of reasons in covid that kids don't want to attend school or it stresses them out and we work with kids that are from sixth grade up to 12th grade. So what made you want to pursue a career in BOCES? Um, I did not even know about BOCES. When I became a teacher, I became a teacher late because I had had multiple other jobs. But when I was a young person trying out jobs, I taught at a, a high school in Maryland. Um, for kids that had struggled in regular um, high school. So it was a small school, smaller classes, and I was an art teacher there for about a year. And then the following year, I became a science teacher as well as an art teacher. It was a part-time job. And I actually loved it, but at that point I wasn't certified in teaching and I started my business in landscape design and installation down in Washington. So I did that for a while. And then I went on to move up here and get a degree, a master's degree in horticulture from Cornell. And got married and raised a kid for a while and did my landscape business on the side. And then at some point, I decided to go back to school and I got a master's to become a teacher. And I had no idea. I really wasn't thinking about special education, but somebody just kept telling me that there was a science teacher job open at BOCES. And I finally got around to applying for it. And that is when I became a special education teacher. Yeah. So was like horticulture, like ever your dream cards. So you started out in horticulture, right? Was that ever your dream job, like a while back, once you became like a young adult? Yes, I think. A while when I basically was a starving artist in D.C. at the time, and I went home to my parents' house, and they had some things that needed pruning, and I was out there pruning. I was like, "This is fantastic! Why can't I do this for a living?" <laughs> I think you know my grandfather through horticulture, right? I did when I was working on my master's under Don Raycow in the horticulture department. He he ended up going on to become the director of the plantations for a while before he retired. Um, but when I was just working on my master's, I decided to do 
not just the study of horticulture, which I could have gotten an MPS, which at Cornell is a Master of Professional Studies. So it's you get your 30 course credits and you write a paper. I didn't know if I wanted to go on to have a PhD. So to do that, you have actually have to have some horticultural field studies, a research project. So I, my research project was the effect of different thicknesses of mulch on the health of trees and their growth and on the health of the tree roots. And when I decided to do that project, your grandfather was managing the research plots down there along Fall Creek, Fort Cornell. And so that's how I got to know your grandfather. And that was one of the best things about having a research plot was I got to, to have a good friend in uh, Tom. Did, did he ever teach you lots of things about horticulture? Like, did he ever teach you like, anything important that helped you out like with the rest of your like horticulture career? Uh, he helped me set up my research plots there and set the whole experiment up and he got the mulch for me and it was did a couple of different types of mulch and so he was you know he was the go-to guy to set up research plots. Yeah. So what exactly is horticulture like gardening? What exactly is it? Well, that's a that's a good question. Um, at Cornell, they have different studies. So it is horticulture is the study of plants in relationship to sales for landscaping. So trees and shrubs and vines, but also, um, yeah, primarily so for the homeowner horticulture. And for arboretums, that would also be horticulture collections of plants and knowing how to grow them and keep them healthy and uh, deal with pests, funguses and bugs and different things like that. Uh, you learn about hardiness, whether a plant, you know, is plants that are hardy here and all the way down to Maryland might not be hardy in the deep south in Georgia and Florida because it's too hot or plants that are hardy in Florida and Georgia, all the way up to Virginia might not be hardy, might be hardy along the coast where it's a little, you know, the ocean buffers the temperature. So up to Connecticut, the coastal Connecticut, they might be able to be grown there, but not in the Northwestern part closer to Massachusetts. Just like around here, you can grow plants down in city of Ithaca that actually Southern Magnolia can be grown in Washington, D.C. and down into Georgia. You cannot grow a Southern Magnolia up in Lansing. It's just one step too colder and out towards Dryden or into the hills around here, it's a whole zone colder as well. So it has to do with lots of things like that. So horticulture is so, like the study behind gardening. It's like the, well, it's like the science behind gardening, the study of science behind gardening. Yes, That's what it is. yes, yes, it is. So people at the horticulture de department went on to grow plants to sell in nurseries, right? Um, if you want to grow fruit trees, that's a whole nother thing. You might, you might take a few classes in horticulture, but you would be in, the science of pomology, which is the study of fruits. I, I had a friend in horticulture who ended up 
taking a pomology class and ended up, he ended up veering into fruit tree and um, sand plum production. So they're close, but yeah. So instead of the business of growing fruits for the market, it's the business of growing ornamental plants for the landscape market and for homeowners. So what's the wildest thing you've ever had to deal with at your college experience? Like any, any, any wild pranks or any, anything like that? Oh, gosh. I don't remember doing wild pranks in college, although I was prone every now and then when I needed a good place to go think. I like to climb trees and go climb a tree and sit up in the tree and think. So I might have been caught a few times sitting in trees at college. So at, <laughs> at, at, at your school, there were no pranks with a giant pumpkin near a clock tower. There was nothing like that. Um, I don't know. There was something about... There might have been something about a cow. We were surrounded by by cow pastures, so I I, I really wasn't paying attention. Somebody but there were some, rode, rode the cows some people like a horse. were interested in pranks like that. You know, cows will only walk up stairs. They won't walk downstairs because they they can't. When they're on a hillside, they never walk straight down a hill. They have to go sideways and do zigzags because it's not as steep. They don't like walking. So going down the stairs is too steep for a cow. So they might've had to figure out a different way to get a cow out of a tall building. <laughs> yeah, my, my family member says so one of the biggest, he just brought this like goat into school <laughs> and for like senior prank day. And uh, yeah, and it went sort of the goat just ran around and went really wild. So some people call you a renaissance woman. Do you think that's true? That's your like dimension, you know how to do and say many things or multi-talented? Well, I, I have learned, I have a lot of interest and I think the beginning of being a renaissance woman or a renaissance man is curiosity. That is the key element because if you're curious, you are always learning new things. And if you're curious and a little bit adventuresome, you might go on adventures and learn new skills that way. So I have never been against an adventure <laughs> as long as it wasn't going to harm anybody or be dangerous. You know, I have a good sense of concern for my health and welfare. So I'm not gonna be doing off-road biking down those steep ravines that you see on those videos sometimes, that's pretty cool to watch, but I would never do that because uh, the reality is I would really hurt myself. <laughs> but as far as adventure, I mean, when I was a teenager looking at jobs, I, you know, I was not averse to trying different kinds of jobs. I did work, you know, had a normal job being a lifeguard a couple of times or working at a snack bar at a club. But one time I decided I wanted to work on a farm and it was a farm where, you know, I had some friends who worked on it, but they were all guys. And I went to apply for a job for the summer and they weren't sure they wanted to hire a young woman for that. 
And so I convinced them to hire me and I ended up working twice as hard as some of the guys, you know, I was digging holes for posts for, you know, post fences. And in Connecticut, the ground is mostly rocks. So it's not an easy job, but you know, I stuck with it because I had something to prove I was as tough as them. And so I worked there the whole summer and they had, they, it was a finishing lot for this Japanese beef, Kobe beef. So that is a special beef where they feed them a special diet with herbs and beer and makes the beef very tender and tasty. And they grew their, they started their cows up in Vermont just on grass. So that beef was, had a lot of nice leanness to it. And then they brought them to the feedlot to put some fat into them with a special diet. But what happens when you feed cows a special diet of beer and herbs, it's, it doesn't agree with their digestive system. So the cleaning up after those cows was not a pleasant thing. It was only a one season job, you know, you have to try things. But I, I've, I have, you know, I got a job once just door to door salesperson for art. And that is, is hard. <laughs> it's hard to make a living doing that. But I learned how to, you know, talk with people and convince them, you know, let them, you know, convince them to listen to you, to your ideas. So that's what I built those skills doing that job. It, that wasn't a long job because I wasn't making a living, but it taught me some skills. So every job you have, you can learn from. But I, I am interested in a lot of different things. Yeah. Is there any real hardships, like giving energy to multiple talents and focusing on like multiple things compared to just focus on one single thing you're passionate about? Um, I think when you are willing to try lots of things, even if they're not maybe what you think, you maybe you don't already have a talent in it, but you want to try, you have to be used to not succeeding at some things and rushing yourself off, you know, and not taking it personal. So it's like you tried something, it didn't work and you go try something else. So you helped get the Lansing Community Library recognized, right, by the government? Uh, there was lots of people involved in that. And as far as that official recognition, that was not my job. But uh -oh. I, I think of myself, I have often been at the beginning of ideas. Sometimes it's my idea. Sometimes I grab an idea that someone has carried and I, you know, you have there you always have to have a sharp end of an axe to cut through some wood right there's resistance there's always resistance to change into big ideas and the library was no exception when a, a couple of us had the idea that we did not think that the old town hall should be knocked down which was the idea of the board at the time they wanted to knock it down haul it away and just have a beautiful green in front of the new town hall where you could just look from the road straight down and see the new town hall. So that was the original plan. But that has a lot of history, that building. It was a schoolhouse for many people for a long time. And it's made of brick and brick really is pretty durable. So that was Kathy Miller and 
Alice Farkas and Alice's husband, Steve, was the supervisor of the town at the time. And we said, we want to, we think this should be a library. And we, the first thing we had to do was get the county library to agree because they weren't allowing new libraries at the time. So we had to go down and negotiate for the idea for Lansing. There were reading centers in other towns and the Tompkins County Library would provide some, some books you know, to them and some support, but you weren't allowed to have your own standalone library. So the three of us really were not good at taking no for an answer. <laughs> so we agreed that Yes, it would be a reading center, but we wouldn't, we couldn't call it that. We absolutely had to have library in the name. So the original name was the Lansing Community Library Center. So we were just one step closer, <laughs> foot in the door, right? Then we got the town board to agree to lease it to the group, you know, the, the board for the library for a dollar a year. But then the board had to come up with people to volunteer their efforts on, uh, on um, you know, we got the first shelves were donated. We went to somebody's barn or, and we stored them in Kathy Miller's barn. So we had the library, you know, cleaned up and ready. And then we brought the shelves in and then you, then the board of trust, so there was a board of trustees and then there was a friends of library committee. So lots of people worked together, the friends of the library, worked on fundraisers for cash for the new books and for, you know, people donated tables and some chairs and they donated some pictures for the walls and people donated their time to fix things that were broken. <laughs> so, and then there, you know, so there was many years of boards that focused on upgrades and then on the big build and then on the gardens. So. I was only there at the very beginning, but it's always held a soft spot in my heart. And so I show up and I do pruning and, you know, I'll help with the garden and stuff like that. But it, it's a fantastic thing. And at some point there was enough support to take it from being a library center to negotiate for the state um, permit or I don't know what is certificate that allowed them to put it before the Lansing community for a vote to make it an independent library. Why so was that, oh, so, so why I was there it? at the idea, the, the beginning at the idea. So I know you're like the exodus of this thing, but uh, why was the county against adding libraries for a while? Because they had built this big expensive county library and they don't want, they wanted funds to go to them because they had built this big library. It's about, you know, there's only money out there. It's about the pot. And when you have a huge expensive building with a lot of staffing, you want people in the towns to go to the big library to support it. But truthfully, I had a little kid at that point and taking a little kid down to the center of Ithaca, the parking was terrible. It just, it wasn't easy. So the library, they've been around for 20 years, right? The Lansing Library? Yeah, yeah, they've been around since about 2001. 
Oh my gosh, I guess it has. <laughs> so yep. right around the same time, was it made? Did it get recognized by the government? No, it was it was it was not recognized right away. It was a it was a library reading center. So it was an offshoot. It was considered an offshoot, although we never considered ourselves less than a library, which is why we insisted that that word be put in the name. And so when it became a library, they dropped the center. So instead of Lansing Community Library Center, LCLC, it became the LCL. How long has it been recognized as a library? I cannot answer that. Um, I think it took my, I, I can't answer that. You'll have to do the research. It was probably yeah, five, it. five or six years later, maybe. Could be longer. Yeah, so, so you also do work for Salt Point, right? Yes, yes. I was involved a long time ago when my son was young. So that was, I don't know. Maybe 2000, around that time, I was involved. There was a fr Friends of Salt Point group that worked really hard to put together a plan for how they thought it should go to become a natural area. And there was a plan made, but it was, I was on the board actually when we applied for the, um, it's kind of like a lease from the New York State. Department of Conservation. So we have a lease. We don't own Salt Point. It is New York State property. So I was involved in it early when there was a lot of dumping out there. I remember the town of Lansing would send trucks out in the spring and there would be literally truckloads of trash out there. Somebody would dump a couch out there and tires and so it really, and it had a lot of crisscrossing of roads because people could drive out there. They would just kind of wheelie through the fields and cut through the woods. And it was a little loosey goosey. And then when I got back on the board, I'm trying to think, 2000 and was it 11 or 12? I can't remember the dates I was on the board, but anyway, it's back a decade or so ago. And they were having a lot of um, problems with it. People were flipping cars, there were fights, um, a lot of drug trafficking, and it wasn't really a safe place for families, good place to bring kids. It was a little bit rougher. And they were debating what to do with it. And the idea that they were heading towards was just knocking down all the brush, all the brush, and just leaving a few trees. So it would have been completely open. And I said, no, you cannot do that. It's a nature area. I mean, it's like a main stopping point for migrating birds. And I have a lot of friends who are birders and the idea of making it more tame just so they could see where people, how people were acting far away, didn't make sense to me. So I, made a proposal to block off the car loop out to the end of the point with concrete blocks and start to plant some things to diversify it. Um, we got the Department of Conservation on board. They agreed that that would be a good idea. 
I mean, at first they had a lot of complaints because everybody was used to driving out there, um, whether there was partiers or families or just driving out to the tip to see the sunset. And of course there's, you know, duck and geese hunters that were used to driving out there with all their stuff. So it was a, it was a big, um, it was a wrestle, the direction of making it a nature area with some comforts like benches. I've really been focused on making sure that it was handicap accessible since people couldn't drive out there it was important to put benches at periodic distances away from parking to have handicapped parking. I thought it was important to have a picnic area on the overlook The Department of Conservation was against that because they didn't want it too tame. But a lot of us felt it was important so that a senior citizen, you know, who didn't have mobility could go sit at the point at a picnic table and I'm gonna cough, excuse me. <clears throat> I've been talking, I've been talking all day, so I don't know how much longer I can go because I'm getting scratchy. I, I, I understand. But anyway, we've tried to balance the interests of the birders and the photographers and the families and senior citizens. And um, when the board okayed putting down stone dust, that really improved it for mobility. You know, people can go out there on a wheelchair or if they've got, you know, some canes, it's much easier to walk on with a stone dust. So it, it has become a better place for wildlife because of all the different types of things that our group has planted in the town, but it's also been better for more people to use it and enjoy it. So these days, do you think with less garbage, you helping out cleaning the environment, do you think the osprey recover, the population has recovered a lot? Like back when it was like trashy, do you think there were like, there, there were less ospreys and it was trashy, right? The, I would say that the trash probably would not have affected the osprey, but, um, you know, Candace Cornell has been really implemented. She was the one who pushed putting up the nest boxes and she worked with uh, Paul Paradigm as a representative of NYSIG. They donated money for and construction of the nest boxes and the poles and they helped put them together. So once you have the pole up and you reduce the chaos around the area, those, those two things made it much more likely that Osprey would nest there and return to raise their young every year as they do. Is Candace Cornell like a relative or granddaughter of Ezra Cornell? I believe it, she is a distant family member, but she might be a great person to interview for an interview another time. So, uh, anyway, thanks for talking. It was really cool learning about your multi-talented, your amazing career over the past 35 something years it was really cool learning about your passions and the stuff you do i guess anyway thanks for talking thank you tom you're you're a good interviewer so keep yeah. going <laughs> i i'm sure we can come on sometime again